Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Welcome back to MASH Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television series of all time. That would be MASH. And uh, I am Ryan Patrick. I am a fan of the show, a lifelong fan of the show, which means I've been a lifelong fan of this guy, Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Ah, hello, everybody. Please, again, sit down. You didn't do that. (laughs) You're not going to get a gift under the seat. Forget it. So generous. Yeah. Hey, Ryan Patrick. Yeah. What number are we at now? Is this 148 or how many? It certainly feels that way. I think this is episode 102. 102. All right. And, uh, you know, we were going to uh, have another episode because it's been a while since we've done an episode, Jeff, where you and I just answer listener questions. Yeah. That's what we were going to do. But we usually never have an answer. That's the problem. So maybe it's better we're not doing that. (laughs) That's true. Uh, We'll do that again next time. We promise. But, you know, when you have an opportunity to talk to MASH royalty, you Mm -hmm. take it. And that's Mm -hmm. what we are going to be doing today. Jeff, would you please introduce our special guest? Well, I'm very happy to introduce this gentleman because he is one of the unsung heroes of the television show MASH. This guy was one of the PA announcers, and his name is Sal Viscuso. Sal, welcome to MASH Matters. It's very, very wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. It's really a treat to be here. Really? And honestly, has, I mean, so far, is it all right? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, it is. (laughs) Well, it is really fun to have you here because so many people have asked, hey, when are you going to have a VA guy? When are you going to have Salva Scusa? And, you know, as I said to you in an email, I think that Ryan and I had just talked about reaching out to you and say, hey, come on, let's do this. Mm -hmm. And the very next day, we get your email. That was really spooky, really, really (laughs) wild. Have you reached out to the other uncredited Loudspeaker announcer, Mr. Todd Sussman, yet? <laughs> not, not yet. Uh, no, he was on the list. You know, we wanted to talk to you both. Mm-hmm. That's great, Jeff. Yeah, we, we will eventually do that. I hope he'll come yeah. on and, and have a good time. Like, hopefully we're going to have. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure he will. I'm sure he will. So how the heck did you start getting that role on MASH? I'll tell you exactly. In 1974, the very first job I had gotten was a movie, The Taking of Pelham 123. Hmm. It had just gotten released. It was a big hit. I was in New York. And Juliet Taylor, who great casting director who cast most of Woody, Woody Allen's pictures, she and Gretchen Rennell were at Marion Doherty's office. And they called my agent in New York and said, I want Sal to come in and meet this guy. He's producing this pilot for the actress Karen Valentine. And Sal's not right for either part, but we want Sal to meet him and we want him to meet Sal. I think it would be a good fit. Bert Metcalf was his name. I knew nothing about him. So I went in, I read, and he told me, no, you're not going to get this part. But if you ever come to Los Angeles, you know, you're a very talented young man. Thank you. And I'll do what I can to help you. So my girl at the time, who was, then became my wife, who was not my wife anymore, but we're best of friends, FYI, mm-hmm. uh, Tess, our parents lived in the Bay Area. So we flew out for Christmas. And I had the thought of maybe coming down to LA and seeing if I can get some work. So I had a place to stay. And right before we decided to do that, I wrote Bert a letter. He was at Fox. And I still have the letter with the 20th Century Fox logo on it. You could imagine how much it meant to get that. Mm-hmm. And then he reiterated, he said, look, I can't promise you anything immediately. But truly, if you ever come in and I do have something for you, I will put you to work. 
Hmm. I came out. I got a pilot. I went back to New York, found out it was a series. We moved out of New York in the middle of the night. We shot the show. It got pulled off the air after five weeks, but I stayed. And the following year, which is now summer of 76, I believe the bicentennial summer, I got a call from Bert saying, would you like to come in and do this little part? And so I went in and I did this. I was a wounded patient. I don't really remember much more than that. I was on my stretcher, and then a second later, three guys are laying on top of me. I used to wake up every morning like that when I was a boy. I had to sleep with my brothers. I'm not going back in that ambulance. It's too dangerous, and I'm not getting in any chopper. Well, uh, all right. We'll send you back on a nice, slow, safe ship. You'll see your family in uh, three or four months. Four months? About that. When's the next ambulance leave? In an hour or so. What's holding it up? And then next thing you know, he said, I want you to come back again, but you're not going to be on camera. You're just going to do this little recording. I got, okay, fine. (laughs) And I drove over to Fox. I did this thing. I think Alan even directed it. Alan Alder directed it. And that was it. And then about three days later, he says, hey, I got another minute I got to fill. Could you come back again? And that's how the whole thing started. (laughs) That's great. So when you did those announcements, were they, did you do them one at a time or were were they, did you do like six of them in a day or how? No, no, no. Usually if they were short on a show, they, he'd call me up and he said, I got, I got a few seconds here and there. I got to fill. Can you come in and we, we got to record something? I said, yeah. So that's basically how it came about. I didn't ever, I don't think I ever recorded a number of episodes. I literally think it was as they were in editing mm-hmm. and they were in ADR and they thought, you know what? We got some time here and mm. they would write something for me to come in and do. So, yeah. And mm. that's, and, and then look, this whole gig wouldn't have started if, Todd hadn't been fortunate enough to get a TV series. I, I think he played like some barnstorming pilot. I don't really remember anything else about it, but he wasn't available. That's how I got to do it. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, some years ago when I was auditioning for commercials, and I'm, I think you and I ran in, into each other. Yeah, yeah, we did. Somewhere. But also Todd Sussman. And back then, I was, I was, <laughs> I was real involved with, with my hair. <laughs> I liked, uh, I like big poofy hair. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I couldn't do it on Mash, but anywhere else, I kind of walked around with big poofy hair. So, you know, I didn't look like I should have really when I went into most of these auditions. Yeah, yeah. But I walk it whenever I'd walk into the room because Todd Sussman used to be on every damn commercial that was on yeah. television, and I walk <laughs> yeah. into the room and he would be sitting there, and I go, Ah, to heck with it, and I'd leave. <laughs> I just you left. <laughs> I leave. Yeah, ah, wow. it's gonna, gonna go to wow. Todd. What the heck? And I, I, they didn't like my poofy hair, so I was dead. Well, you weren't destined to be a quote-unquote commercial actor. You had a, Look, being on MASH and being on you know, almost half of the episodes, that's a pretty wonderful credit, buddy. You got that for life, and we all three of us know how great the show is, obviously. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and we're lucky. I mean, it's provided us a kind of an annuity like no other job I ever did. I got paid a tenth on mash or what I got when I became a regular on soap mm-hmm. and because soap was on tape, which was the other union at the time. It didn't make the kind of money that we made because of the screen actors guild. And uh, mash has proven to help me out a lot of years, man, where it's been lean. Mm-hmm. I can't complain. I mean, you could say it, you too, right? Right. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Every absolutely. every few months we get checks. It's not bad. No, it's uh, I don't send it back or anything. I keep the money. <laughs> no, I you do. better, brother. Yeah. You better. So uh, the PA announcer is uncredited. Yeah. Why did you never get credit? The weird thing is it never occurred to me to even ask Bert. Huh. And get this. There was a show on Adult Swim in the last five years. <laughs> yes, I was hoping you. You were know where I'm be. going. You yes, know where I'm I going do. with this. Yes, why I wanted to guys, ask. Why don't you tell everybody where I was going with this? Well, there was a show called Children's Hospital, and I used to watch it. It was a very absurdist, weird, funny, short TV show on Adult Swim, and there was a voice that would come over the loudspeaker. The voice is belongs to actor Michael Sarah, right. who was on Arrested Development and has done a lot of other things. Yeah. It right. didn't dawn on me what they were doing until I was watching the credits. And Michael Sarah, his character is credited as Sal Viscuso. I know. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many people wrote me and said, you know, you really should contact that producer. I don't remember <laughs> his name. Rod somebody or Rob? Oh, is it Rob Cordry? That's it. He was one of the stars of the show, too. Yeah, and he wrote me back and he said, I, I, I'd love to use you. I, I hope you don't mind that I did this. I said, no, not at all, but I'm still alive. Wanted to take advantage of that. And, and, <laughs> but nothing around. came of it. Nothing oh, came of it. I know oh. I got a kick out of that. And look, I loved it. That occasionally in the TV Guide crossword puzzle, I would come up as that three-letter S-A-L blank voice on Nash. But yeah. my family dissed me because they, well, you never made the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. It never ends, yeah. does it? <laughs> never. Talk never about quite yeah. right. Yeah. Gee, yeah. It was. But it was it was a funny, funny coincidence, I thought, too. Wow. I haven't met Michael Sarah. I look forward to that day. I'll tell him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, I meant to ask you, Jeff. Have there been conventions that you've gone to and signed autographs and stuff? That's something I've never, ever done. Do you do that? Uh, uh, yes, I have. Uh, just recently, as a matter of fact, Loretta Swit was very uh, instrumental in trying to convince me to do it. Good. And uh, she sort of set it all up, and I did it, and I did three of them. And it was a lot of fun. It's a very eye-opening experience because you get a chance to look at people in the eye, and they get really emotional about how important and how impactful MASH was to them in their lives. Wow. And, you know, they get tears in their eyes and I get, wow. And, you know, Ryan, we had the 50th anniversary of the debut of MASH in September. Whoa. And Ryan flew out to Los Angeles and we went out to the ranch and a whole bunch of people came out there. And Ryan, you experienced that too, didn't you? Where people really got emotional about their their involvement. It's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, one thing that's really been eye-opening doing this podcast is how deep an emotional connection people have with this series. We read a lot of listener messages. And, and emails and play voicemails and things like that. And so some of these stories are, will just tear your heart out, you know, mm-hmm. so what some of these people have gone through and how they credit MASH for getting them through and giving them a path in life and giving them a career choice. And I, mean, I it's, believe that it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's it's really something. So, yes, if we can do a, an autograph show together, that would be a lot of fun. I would love that. I would get a kick out of it because I've never yeah. done one before. So it would be a trip. You know, the idea of selling an autograph uh, yes, I had some, I had some reservations about it as well. And there's a part of you that goes, well, gee, I feel so weird, you know, gosh, you're giving money. But when I saw the fact that people don't necessarily have an opportunity to meet somebody that from their favorite show yeah. and take something away, I kind of get it. And it's a win-win situation for both parties, really. It really is. Well, you know, it's something I had to accept the fact that I'm a commodity. 
which I've never seen myself as such. Yeah. And when I saw what's her name, Princess Leia and Mark Hamill mm-hmm. and all those folks at a convention where they were signing autographs, I thought, wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, who am I to, to minimize and belittle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it really it taught me. I, it taught me to value not only what I've done, what you've done, what Alan, Mike Farrell and I are buddies. And Mike, I mean, gosh, you want to hear something crazy? A week ago, I stood online in, on Virgil Avenue to half an hour to get a bagel because the buddy said, you got to go to this bagel place. It's called Courage Bagel. And I swear to God, Elliot Gould was sitting outside waiting <laughs> for <his> bagel order. <laughs> and I'm the only one that recognized him, speaking of match. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Elliot Gould, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's why. What where is the bagel place? What's the name of it? South Virgil. It's called Courage Bagel. Go online and order. Because yeah. if you don't, you will wait and they will only sell you six bagels. They're open <laughs> Thursday to Sunday. And I was so annoyed by the time I got to the window, I said, Well, I had like half a dozen of these. They go, Oh no, you can only order more than six online <laughs> for first 72 hours, but 24 hours works as well. So courage bagels, seven, seven, seven South Virgil. <laughs> we, we have done very well. We should get a whole box of bagels for that. <laughs> that might be our first sponsor right there. I yes. think so. Right. <laughs> well, you want to hear funny speaking? Yeah. Listen, you should do that because years ago I recurred on Lois and Clark just just briefly. Mm-hmm. And it was a character that, that traded in, I was an informer and he traded information for food, which was crazy because I was thin as a rail. But one episode, they had me eating Chinese food from a phone booth. And so I said, I'm eating slippery shrimp from Yang Chow. And nobody at the network realized it was downtown LA on Broadway. <laughs> I didn't have to buy any food at Yang Chow for five years because I plugged it. <laughs> That's cool. I mentioned their slippery yeah. shrimp. You know, you sent me a, 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 a really terrific, a couple of recipes. So yeah. you're a food guy, huh? Are you a food guy? Because okay, I'm a my food dad, guy. My dad, my dad was a chef. He had an Italian restaurant oh. in Brooklyn called the Genovese House in the 50s. It was in a very upscale Jewish neighborhood. And I, and I was there occasionally helping him peeling garlic. It was when I was really super young. And it was a great place. And all my memories of my dad, because he left when we were young, was around food. Ah. And my mom did the cooking because, you know, when dad was gone. And I emulate, most of my recipes are from my mom, who are from my Nona. She's gone now, too. Her mom. So, yeah, I, I cooked. And by the way, when I was re- working regularly back in the, in the Stone Age, <laughs> I got off from my own cooking show and I turned it down like an idiot. Could you imagine? Oh boy. Yeah. Oh, everybody's doing everything now, but I had to, Hey, you'll love it. I had this idea. I'm an actor. How could I, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Thank <laughs> yeah, you very right. much. Good night. Thank you. Well, I, uh, you know, I did write a cookbook in 1997. You did? Secrets of the Mash Mess, The Lost Recipes of Private Igor. Really? Yeah. And it was- Oh, wow. I got to get it. Well, w- hang on. It, it was on sale for a number of years. And then a weird thing happened with the publisher. And it began to be printed in a very uh, awful condition. And the publisher lost the files, and it was a big, long story, and I won't bore anybody with, but I eventually got the total rights to the book. And I have been restoring the book because it was really insulting to anybody who bought it. So it's it's about two weeks away from being restored. I want it. 
and I'm going to put a bunch of stuff in it. And your meatball recipe, boy, would it be good in the book. Gosh <laughs> darn. You can use it. Yeah? you Can we put it in there? It ties in with mash. And brother, you absolutely can use it. No, I'd li- I'm going to do that. If you want to do that, I'm be happy to do it. Well, in one of the uh, appearances you made on mash, you were Sergeant McGill. So it could be yeah. McGill's meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I think I was uh, involved with black market stuff in that as that sergeant, wasn't I? There were two episodes where you were basically kind of shifty. <laughs> yeah, uh, you because you yeah. made three appearances on screen. One in Dear Sigmund, that was your first one. Yeah, and then post op is where you were Sergeant Raymond McGill. Maybe I don't have to go, Doc. Put a few good marks in that chart, and you'll be swimming in whiskey. I didn't bring my trunks. I'll let you borrow the camera. You'll take so many pictures of yourself, your wife will think you're back home. Sorry, McGill. Oh, come on, Doc, please. How am I going to make any money in Jersey City? They say America's the land of opportunity. Sending me home, huh? I heard you doctors had no hearts. And then Corporal Benny Bryant in uh, Tea and Empathy. And that one is the one where you tell uh, Father Mulcahy where the hidden stash of black market penicillin is located. Yeah. But hey, I didn't do the actual stealing. They just paid me to stash the stuff. Stash it? Where? Under the temple bell at the burnt-out village school. I see. Well, if you want his forgiveness, you're going to have to right the wrong. Oh, I'd love to, but I got a plane to catch. I'll work on it when I get home. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Let's see. Drinking, fighting, fraternizing, black market. Nope, that's it. But you know what's funny? The first one I did, he was a sympathetic, good guy. Yeah. And then I guess the longer they knew me, because of my Brooklyn dialect, they immediately, oh, yeah, he's perfect for these kind of shady guys. So I kind of got typecast on the show. And I had I continued, they probably would have found more bad guys, which brings me up to the fact that, Jeff, you were lucky you played the same character. Mm-hmm. We were lucky that if we did other shows at the time, we could come back as different characters, which really doesn't happen anymore now. Mm-hmm. No. I did four different Barney Millers as four different characters. Did you really? Wow. Wow. Danny Arnold ended up writing a couple episodes for me specifically, but it was always a different character. And we were lucky. You know, really, we're lucky. I have a question of you, Jeff. Did you do a lot of other TV episodic stuff while you were on MASH, or did you just concentrate on MASH? I did do other things while I was on MASH. I did. But but the concentration and the focus was really on MASH, and that's where most of the time went. It really was. That's good. And it's just, I have a question for you. Our experience of being on that set and with the kind of people that we were around versus other sets, do you have a sense about, you know, can you share anything about what was different about being on MASH as opposed to another television show? That's easy. First of all, MASH and Barney Miller were my absolute two favorite experiences as an actor because both were run ostensibly by one person. It was one person's vision. Both shows scrutinized the writing, invested so much that all all we had to do basically is show up, be present, be enthusiastic, obviously be prepared. And that's all. I'm, I'm, I'm... I felt like I was royalty working on the MASH set, both on location out where it was where we were in the ranch, but even in the Fox lot, which was so intimate and so private. Mm-hmm. And everybody treated me so respectfully. 
Whereas I've been, I was on other shows and I'm sure you experienced them as well without mentioning any names where it was clear from the top down, Mm -hmm. there was not the same respect for the writing and for the actors and this crew. And I felt like everybody was behind us when we were on the mash set. I remember once I had to do a recording and Alan came in, he was directing the episode and Alan was in full gear. Mike was there and I, and I was, Alan got everybody basically moving because the episode was one in triage and it was really intense and I'll never, ever forget that. And I wasn't dressed anything like the way they were, but he made me bring like it was life and death. Mm -hmm. I never had an experience like that in any other set. Mm -hmm. Never. Wow. I've never had a job like it since, except when I've been in the theater. I did Clybourne Park 10 years ago up in the Portland Center stage. And when you said how people said to you at those conventions where you signed autographs and Ryan, you echoed it too. You're a living example of it. MASH, the work matters. Yeah. It changed some people's lives. It gave them a path. I know that sounds so damn pretentious, you know, <laughs> but God bless it. It's true. Mm-hmm. We, you know, you talk about these autograph shows and I know you, you said you haven't done them yet, but no, I have never done them, but, but you get fan mail and you get people who are wanting, wanting your autograph and, and things sign, like that. Yeah. What do people know you the most from? Is it mash? Is it soap? Oh, there are a bunch of people that grew up, know me from space balls. Cause I'm the first guy <laughs> you see that zapped in the balls. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, now, you are. <laughs> there's a good story about this. Do you know how I got the, ge- do you, you'll love this. Speaking of food. Okay. Uh-huh. The Montefusco's that I did, the short-lived series on NBC, was in 75. The following year, I get a call from the mother of one of the kids who played one of my nephews on the Montefusco's. And her kid went to high school with Carl Reiner's son, Lucas. Huh. And Lucas was telling this woman, Terry Panassi was her name. She said, He said, Ma, uh, Lucas Reiner was saying that, that Carl and his wife are going to go to China with Norman Lear, and they need a dog sitter at their house. And Terry thought of Tess and me, and we went over and met Carl. And here's the Carl, the Jew from the Bronx and Brooklyn Sal Viscuso Italian. We start talking about food right away. And I get to the Carl that I made homemade pasta. And Carl says, you do, do you? I go, yeah. He goes, you want to cook for me and my wife Estelle and a few friends? I said, sure. And he says, okay, hold on a second. He got up, he went to his desk and pull out his roller desk. You'll tell people what that is. And he says, hello, Mel. Uh, uh, Are you and Annie free on Saturday night? Uh-oh. I got this Italian kid actor guy, Sal Viscuso. He says he makes fresh pasta. Okay, great. <laughs> Don't bring anything. Just come. Hangs up the phone. Hello, Dom, as in Dom DeLuise. Uh-huh. You and Carol free on Saturday night? Oh, blah, wow. blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you could bring your mother from Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> Three days later, Rodeo Drive, Tess and I are cooking in Carl Reiner's house. And who shows up? Mel Brooks, Annie Bancroft, a.k.a. Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate, upon whom I had a crush, didn't we all? Yeah. And Dom DeLuise, his Italian mother who barely spoke English, and Dom's wife, Carol. And I cooked for them. Oh. And out of that dinner, thank God they liked my meatballs and my, <laughs> and my lasagna. Yeah. I got three movies out of it. I got Spaceballs, oh. of 
course, in 87, 11 years later. I got Fatso, the only movie Annie Bancroft ever directed. Yeah. And I did World's Greatest Lover that Gene Wilder directed, and Gene wasn't even at the dinner. So I can't reiterate enough. They like my food, apparently, and I guess they like me, too. If either one of those had not been up to par, I wouldn't have gotten those three movies, I'm sure of it. And when I got <laughs> Spaceballs, I'll never forget it. I, my agent was trying to negotiate more money. And Mel called me directly and says, tell him to quit busting my chops. You're in the first desk. You're Sergeant Rico. You get a lot of coverage because I don't know when the hell I'm going to need you. You're going to get $2,500 a week. I'm sure you're going to make a lot of money from residuals. Now be quiet. Just go over there and sit. And that was my experience with Mel for five weeks on Spaceballs. <laughs> Great. Oh, wow. My cooking, Jeff. Ryan, my cooking. Yeah. Hey, there you go. See, food. It's all about food, isn't it? (laughs) So at the same time you were working on MASH, you were also working on soap, correct? Yeah. Oh, by the way, I got my last on-camera MASH as I booked a series regular on soap. And Bert says, I can't use you on camera anymore, but you're going to continue to do the voiceovers. Gotcha. Mm. That's what happened. Your character on soap was a little controversial. Father Tim. Yeah. Yeah. We almost almost didn't get on the air because the uh, religious conservatives in the country had gotten this story. I don't know where they got it from. None of them read the script. That it was a priest in the Catholic church trying to seduce one of the parishioners. And that could not have been farther from the truth. And anybody who watched the show, I didn't ever behave inappropriately. And, And I'm... Of course, I'm Catholic Italian, and Tony Thomas, one of the producers, was Catholic. And they literally would confer with me on what to do sometimes. In fact, one of my early episodes in which I was praying at the altar, I had my confessional, my my missal, from when it was my actual confirmation at St. Mary's Star of the Sea in Brooklyn, and I all it was in Latin. And Corinne comes into the church, and she's trying to get to me, and I don't say anything except in Latin. And Tony called me into the office, and he said that the network was a little worried about Get this, some of my looks to her in response to what she was saying to me. And I wasn't even touching her. Mm. That's how uptight they were. Wow. Yeah, it was, yeah. So those, I got a lot of crazy mail in those days because people would say things like, how could a Jewish guy be playing a Catholic priest? Because of the way I spoke and because my last name was Father Flotsky, which was the Lenny Bruce character. And that was a very Jewish sounding name. Mm-hmm. I got some really crazy mail. And I remember after I did my first episode, Fred Silverman, who ran the network at the time, we were together and he said to me, I got to tell you, Sal, we might not be able to get you on the air, but I just want to let you know it was a pleasure hiring you. And I held my breath oh. because there was no guarantee the shows were ever going to air with me on them. Getting back, MASH, you did the PA announcer through 1979. Yeah, 79 or 80, and then Todd came back, and I think he finished the rest of them. He came back. That was why you were no longer on the show. After. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure, yeah, that, that yeah, there wasn't an overlap, because when I stopped, I guess he became available again. But I'll tell you, when I was on Soap and I was the uncredited voice, loudspeaker voice on MASH, I became known as the loudspeaker guy, which I was during that run. But in all fairness to Todd, I mean, he did a hell of a lot more than of him than I did, and he was the main guy before I even came aboard. And he's got a pretty unmistakable voice, and he had a pretty, mm-hmm. pretty funny, talented guy. And as I told you, Jeff, we often went up for the same commercials. Yeah. And many times it come down to the two of us mm-hmm. at the callbacks. 
we flip out. Sometimes I'd book him. Sometimes he'd book him. So I was always in good company when I saw him. Sure. He did some of the episodes as well, right? He did one. Yeah, he did one. He did one. Wow. Yes. Yeah, I was bummed that I couldn't do it anymore in camera because it truly was a very, very special set. There wasn't, soap wasn't even like it, except initially. When we were in the trenches, when we first did soap, it was very intimate. The producers asked for my opinion. I really loved it. And Susan Harris was the person who created all my episodes, at least most of the ones that I did. So you had one vision. You had, you had Larry Armash, you had Susan on Soap, and you had the late Danny Arnold on Barney Miller. And it was not done by a committee. Mm -hmm. It was done by one person's vision. We were very spoiled, very, very spoiled. Mm -hmm. And now I can't even imagine what a lot of these network TV shows are like, or even the streaming ones. I really haven't done any streaming ones. But you are still working. You still make a lot of uh, appearances on. I do. I do, thankfully. But as at this day and age, there's fewer calls for older white men. Because let's face it, a lot of people have been marginalized and haven't had a seat at the table. And I, I, although I don't feel like retiring, I have to say it's more challenging, even with more outlets and there's more content. It feels like there are a lot more people competing for as many of the newer jobs. Jeff, you, do you experience that as well? You know, I kind of got into writing and trying to raise money and make movies and sell my own television shows. So I sort of kind of got away from auditioning. Good. And uh, doing it. I mean, I love it. If somebody called me up and said, hey, you want to do this? I'd say, sure. Yeah. But it's not my focus right now. So I Have you I, had to do self-taping as well? I haven't done that. No. It, 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 I've recorded professionally. There's a guy in the Valley who's just great, everybody. Talk about plugs. Joe Kell, K-E-L-L. -L. He's in North Hollywood. He's not listed, but if anybody writes in, I can tell you where to find him. And he's got a, a great operation and, and not only looks great, I mean, he makes you feel like you're on a movie set. He's a former actor. Mm. And hes I've gotten some success. I did Lyle Lyle the Crocodile, which has been out in the movies in the last few months with Javier Bardem. Yeah. And I did that by putting myself on tape. And I got to play my first judge. And I went to Atlanta. And that was a great experience. Uh, speaking of uh, recording things, people have asked me, well, how do they do the announcer thing? How did that happen? How did that happen? You mean what the process was? Yeah. Well, how did you do that? At Fox, there was ADR, Additional Dialogue Recording Studios, not too far from where Burt Metcalf, our associate producer, lived in that old classic building on the Fox lot. And that's basically it. And, and they, sometimes it would be the picture because they wanted me to know contextually what was going on. But oftentimes it was without picture. And I stood in front of a microphone and I had the copy in front of me. And Burt would usually be there. Burt Metcalf would be there. And we just run it a number of times. Again, contextually, what was going on in the episode? Like, I remember one, it was really silly. Attention, attention, all personnel. The winner of the Abbott and Costello lookalike <laughs> contest is. Yes. It was prisoner of war, blah, blah, blah. And, and it might have been Jamie's character as well. Yes. Yeah, but it was that was but it wasn't always crazy like that. Sometimes it was pretty, you know, attention, attention, all personnel incoming wounded. I mean, a lot of times it was pretty, pretty serious stuff, but I like the funny ones <laughs> because it was a little looser in the studio, but when it was heavy, it was all business. And how long would that usually take? Oh, under an hour. Under an hour. Yeah. You know, we, they didn't okay. do it they mm -hmm. usually Bert 
when he would tell me what the tone of it was and the way he would describe it, thankfully I got it pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So we didn't belabor any of the, any of the sessions, Yeah, but none of them ever really went on too long. I don't have any memory of that. And equally when I shot the show, I don't ever remember any of the days being exceptionally long. How was that? How was your experience on it, Jeff? Sometimes it would be all day and sometimes it would be, you know, half an hour, depending on what the scene was and all that kind of stuff. So, Do you, do you remember the director, Charles Dubin? Oh, yeah. I love Charlie. Charlie directed yeah. me. And wasn't he blacklisted? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We had his daughter on the podcast talking about him and his life story. And he his, did? Yeah. Wow. It's fascinating. Yeah. My three, the three episodes I remember, Alan directed one, Charlie directed one. And I, I, I should remember who the third person was, but- yeah, Charlie was great. I worked with him on another thing. He was Yeah, he was great. Yeah. Yeah. Kind, elegant gentleman. Yeah. He was a uh-huh. terrific guy. Hey, I have a question. Did I answer your question about how we did the voice, the vo- how I did my announcement? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I forget that people don't know, and you're right. They're curious. They want to know. Some people think, oh, well, did they do it on the set? Did they do it right there where the, where no. the radar was and the microphone? No. And I say, no. no, no. But now they're hearing it from you, which is very important. We always recorded in the booth in the studio. I never got to record it live. Mm-hmm. Well, and that brings up an impossible question. There is no correct answer, but I'm curious what your answer is. Where the heck was the PA announcer in camp? <laughs> you mean, where was the actual loudspeaker? No, I mean, where was he to speak into a microphone? Because, you know, you had Radar's office, and there were times when we as the viewer were in Radar's office when the guy <laughs> on the loudspeaker starts talking. Okay, okay, okay. So where was he? I had my own tent. Okay. All right. Not allowed to go any further than that. <laughs> well, you this hear is me? a scoop. This is a scoop right here. I yeah. have my own tent. <laughs> Don't press me any further than that. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll drop it. I, I can't believe you put me on the spot like that. Yeah, well, that was a tough deal. <laughs> you guys are sneaky, you know? <laughs> we asked the hard-hitting questions, Sal. Yeah. Hey, I got a question. Hey, Jeff, if you publish yeah. my meatball recipe in your cookbook, Yes, sir. Does that mean I've got to go to you to get the rights when I want to publish it in my cookbook? <laughs> we can negotiate that. We'll, we'll, we'll work that out. Okay. Okay. I, I was on your website, and one thing that surprised me, uh, officialsalviscuso.com is the website. I did not know that you were a painter. I am. Yeah. Terrific painter. I am. I uh, I I was lucky. Do you guys remember the early Gary Shandling show, It's Gary Shandling? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And one of the regulars was wonderful actress, Molly Cheek, who was his next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. She was like Kristen Wiig, that caliber. Yeah. And Molly and I got together. And Molly, for Christmas, one of our first Christmases together, gave me a Christmas present, which was an art class of my choice. Oh. And I never painted or anything, but she knew how much I loved art. And she said, I just think this might be of some interest to you. And sure enough, and I was fortunate enough to go to UCLA, which is where I took my first class with a teacher who's still alive. He's almost 100 named Joe Blaustein. And Joe Blaustein, as I told him very recently, again, you gave me eyes with which to see for the first time. And I just started to draw. And he says, just draw what you see. And sometimes he would have us close our eyes and just move the hand, our hands. And he said, and don't ever treat anything like it's precious because it's all fleeting. 
And I would a lot of times just do something quick. I didn't like it. I'd throw it away. He said, start again. And he kept me in the present all the time. And it was mostly a figure drawing class. And that's how I got my start. And we, we out of that, we, we had a, a, an art collective that came out of it. And he invited us. And that's where I met my wife in 1995, Beverly. And she was extraordinary. And, and she still is. And I was so intimidated by her work. I, I couldn't really talk to her and I would just stare at her secretly. And after six months, I finally had the courage to ask her out <laughs> because she blew me away with her work. Her work is so it's Edward Hopper esque. Oh yeah. And, and she would depict people. I know you asked me about my painting, but I can't help but talk about my wife. <laughs> she would paint people in activity, even though they might be with other people, the work made you feel like each person was in his or her own world. And her palette had a very similar kind of tone as Edward Hopper's. There was a gravitas. If you could apply that word to a painting in colors, I, I hope it makes sense. Does that make yeah. any kind of sense? Well, I'm, I'm a huge Edward Hopper fan. So yes, it makes total sense to me. Yeah. And, that, and I was drawn to her work her work pulled me in. And one of the great things about Joe, which, which I try to apply to whenever I look at anything art or when I read or when I go to a movie is allow your eyes to go with what pulls you into the work. So when I go and see someone in a play, whether I know their work or I don't, and they ask an opinion, he or she, I, I try to take note of where I was pulled in and focus on that. And out of that, the conversation can expand as opposed to sitting there like I'm some high and mighty critic. Well, you know, I had trouble with, which is kind of being in LA and I'm sure you experienced it too, Jeff, where it's the cool thing to be critical. Mm -hmm. And I never learned how to be cool like that. Yep. I try to find things that move me and build on that. And I'll tell you the the person who asks you about their work it helps them more because I wasn't there directing them. Who am I to criticize what they did after they worked in a rehearsal room six weeks, seven, eight weeks? And it's helped me as a, to be less critical of my own self, even though I'm extremely critical of my work. There's a Cezanne quote that Joe Blaustein had shared with me. Apparently, Cezanne spent 119 hours on a portrait, and they asked him what he thought. He said, I, I'm not entirely dissatisfied with the shirt front. <laughs> <laughs> I will allow myself that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Including this podcast today. If I ever listen to it, I may go so far as to say, yeah, it's okay. I sound like <laughs> an idiot, probably. I probably didn't answer Jeff and Ryan's questions. I probably wasn't very articulate. God oh, knows. No. No, God no, knows no. the letters they're going to get. Who was that guy again? Let's bring <laughs> another guy. The other guy. Why was he on? Where's that Todd Sussman? How come you didn't bring Todd in? on it. Do you and your wife paint together or do you have separate? We have. Studios? We have painted together. We have a studio. But the problem is I like listening to Springsteen and she likes listening to Rostopovich played the cello. Okay. So out of respect to my wife, I paint when she's not in the studio. <laughs> no. You follow? Yeah. yeah. I invite people to go to your website and uh, check out the paintings. Again, that's officialsalviscuso.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. You, I know you're on Instagram. Is there any other place where people can connect with you? 
Well, I was on Twitter briefly. I had a recurring role in Scandal, and the deal was they wanted everybody to be on Twitter. But I found it to be so toxic at a certain mm-hmm. point, some of the comments that people made. So I disappeared from Twitter. I found the same problem on Facebook. So no, I'm just mostly, you know, my website and on Instagram. And I like Instagram because a lot of the stuff on there is fun mm-hmm. and it's not particularly political, uh, which I prefer, even though I'm guilty of putting some things up there like <laughs> I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, just basically like that, or you can, you can write me and I'll send stuff if anybody wants email. And I wanted to tell you, Jeff, I personally want to thank you for something because I went on your site and it said, if you want autographs, please send here. And I never thought to everything do like that to just actually put that there. Like, Mm -hmm. so I appreciate that. It was just yeah. another form of, of validating what we do, buddy. It is, and it's fun to get them, and it's uh, it's kind of fun. The only downside sometimes is that people will send you like nine pictures. Oh, <laughs> Say, I get yeah, that. One I get from that. my aunt Gussie and my uncle. Yeah, Drew, I get that. Uh, Hank. So I'm, I have to kind of limit it to one or two maybe. Well, I've gotten that too, but re- the last one I got, I didn't even respond, is it was a, it was a form letter. And if anybody's listening – I would suggest they do not do this because I will put it in the garbage. You ready? <laughs> Hi. And then it was a standard, your work means so much to me. And then and it would, it, I don't yes. even know if you mentioned any particular credits and I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. There were 10 blank, glossy three by five shaped cards and they wanted me to just sign them. I tossed it in the garbage. Yep. I honestly was put off by that. Sure. I like it when someone takes the time, like you guys were saying, your work mattered. Mm-hmm. And they're very specific about how it mattered. I, I've gotten some beautiful letters over the years. And I've had, I mean, I'm sure you've had experiences from your work where people have, have said to you, your work has mattered to me this much. I, those letters really stand out. And I've actually kept a few, you know, a couple of three. Yeah, absolutely. They inspire me. Sometimes I get down and when it happens and I go back and I look at my 50 years in the business, I thought, yeah. And look, I I first started pursuing acting in college after being moved by the late Ivan Dixon's performance in in a TV movie called The Final War of Ollie Winter, where he was a Vietnam veteran. It came out in the spring of 67 and it was on CBS. And it made me go to the drama department the next day and audition because I was so moved by his performance. I turned to my friend, Ginger Drake, with whom I went to uh, Davis, UC Davis undergraduate. And I said to Ginger, I, I, I just got to do this. And she said, well, they have auditions in the drama department tomorrow. Come with me. And I literally felt like I found my family when I walked in the drama department mm-hmm. and I got, got cast in, in the plays right away. I never looked back. Mm. I just, I don't, God, this just makes me happy talking to you. Gosh. Uh, it's, it's so great. It, you listen, we've kept you a, a long time here. Do you have something that you'd like to say to the MASH folks or one last thing about somebody you worked with or something, you know, some little personal thing you might share about the MASH experience? Okay. Well, the first thing that pops into my head, what I liked when I worked on MASH, since that's our focal point, is that everybody with whom I worked felt like they were not acting and they were just basically versions of themselves. They were authentic. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Loretta had an edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Billy <laughs> Christopher was just sweetheart like Gary. Yeah. Yeah. Mike straight ahead guy, very moral. 
you know, really didn't hold back on his opinions about anything. What I took away from that was the authenticity and that when I have dabbled in writing, which I'm going back to, is that it's important to write people that are real people so that any words that came out of their mouths, you wouldn't go, huh, that sounds unfamiliar. Because I felt like when I would watch MASH, I felt like I knew all those people, Mm -hmm. even if their life experiences were something beyond anything that I knew. And that's something that I've tried to carry with me is I've always looked for authenticity. I mean, a lot of times I'm watching other people's work. And as I said earlier, when I get pulled into something that's moving me about by their performance, I focus on that. And it takes me out of wherever I've been. It transports me. It's like looking at some of my wife's paintings. It transports me to another world. And it makes me forget about whatever I was troubled about or obsessed about or worrying about. So, yeah, I I guess it's basically that is constantly trying to stay authentic and in present tense and, and just focus on that. I know this sounds so bloody pretentious. I know, but but that's all that matters to me is just the authenticity mm-hmm. so that it never feels like it's not real. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and you've certainly uh, made sense here today. Thank you. Absolutely, Thank positively. You. Thank you, guys. We are so happy that you reached out to us. And it's a thrill. It really is a thrill to have you on the show. And I know it's going to be a thrill for listeners to listen to all the wonderful things you have to say. Well, good luck in editing down this. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of crap in there, so you've got to edit me out a lot. No, this has been a treat. Thank you so much, Sal, for spending some time with us. You and- guys rock. You guys are the best. Thank you both. And again, this episode has been brought to you by Joe Kell in the Valley and Curry Bagel <laughs> on Virgil Avenue. Yeah. And my favorite Italian restaurants, Angelini Osteria, Da Pasquale, Marino's Osteria Mama, and Pizza down at Chris Bianco. And you know who Chris Bianco is. So if you go to Netflix and then you click on Chef's Table uh-huh. and you click on Pizza, He's the first guy that they interview, and he's a sweetheart, and he's in downtown L.A., Chris Bianco from the Bronx. Cool. Nice. All right. This episode was also brought to you by Sal Viscuso's Meatballs. I have to throw that in there. Very <laughs> important. Thank you very much, which he insists on go. using only imported Romano, but don't ask for imported when you're in Italy. <laughs> okay? All right, guys. Sal, it's been great. Hey, thanks uh, for tuning in. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. You can uh, email us, mashmatterspodcastgmail.com. I'll see you soon, buddy. Okay, you're great. Absolutely, Sal. Thank you. A true pleasure. Okay, cool. Bye-bye. And until next time, here's looking up your old address. <laughs> <laughs>